This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Welcome to the final presentation in this series about creation or evolution, which faith will you choose? And normally we, you know, I was going to do this the second message. For any of you who have not been here, we switched around the second and the last message. The second message was going to be this one, but I put it here uh, because I wanted to switch the other one to there. So you get to hear, did Darwin murder God? And to me, this is one of the most interesting messages on creation that, that I share in... You know, I'll just tell you a little bit about myself before we get started. My name is Chad Cruiser. I am from, I was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan. My wife and I live full-time on the road. We have a house, nowhere. So we just travel all the time. And we put on seminars about the Bible. Uh, we put on seminars about Bible prophecy. We put on seminars about uh, health and the gut-brain connection and various things, and we make a living making documentary films. So we go around archaeologists, historians, theologians, scholars, and we interview them about various subjects, and we make documentaries that are to share the messages we've been given. Our intended audience are for those who are not believers, but Christians enjoy them, and you know Adventists enjoy them, but that's not our target audience. We're looking to reach people who may not be believers at all, and so that's what we do. So these are something that um, they've been a blessing to us, and we made them just because we saw a need. We were working with atheists, agnostics, uh, people who did not believe in the Bible, and we thought, man, what if somebody would make something that looked like Discovery Channel or History Channel, but instead of being skeptical, gives a reason to believe? And not only believe in general, yes, that, but also believe the message we've been given, which is, to me, the most powerful message there is on planet Earth. And I'm not just saying that. It's changed my life. I came to the knowledge of this message that we've been blessed with, that we've been given in the Adventist church when I was in college, and I want to share this message with others. But before we begin our message this afternoon entitled, Did Darwin Murder God?, I ask that you'd bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Great God and our Creator, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be in this room in a special way, that you'd bless each one of the seminars taking place, Lord. I pray here that you would strengthen our faith in you. We thank you for this time. In the name of Jesus, amen. I want to say one thing to you uh, that is not part of this message, but one of the things, and I mentioned this to the rest of the group, but if you weren't here, you wouldn't have heard it, that some of you, many of you may be going to secular university or even some of our universities and may have professors who do not believe in the Adventist message or don't believe in creation, and they will teach you. I had a young man come to me, you know, from one of our universities, and, um, and one of the things that happens is that you hear, and the Bible says, I've been sharing with you each day, every single message, I've shared a verse. It is from Proverbs chapter 18 and verse, anybody remember? 17, 18, 17. And it says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Meaning, if somebody comes to you and presents to you a case for any matter that they know of and believe in, and when they state it to you, generally it sounds legitimate. Yes or no? And, yeah, I mean, you believe it. I mean, why wouldn't you, you know? But maybe you've never heard the other side of the story. And so I'm giving you an opportunity because it's just standard. I mean, if you're going to read a general biology textbook, you're gonna, it's going to begin with evolution. And then it actually gets into science after that. But very interestingly... Uh, there is another side to the story, and we've been looking at that. We've looked at how certain things like Darwin's finches still just had beaks. 
They didn't change anything else. And by the way, the larger-beaked birds went back to smaller-beaked birds when the weather changed, right? So it didn't actually create anything different. We looked at the peppered moths, and we find out that they actually don't live on tree trunks, in, you know, out in the open on tree trunks, that the scientists have now discovered that that was a faulty study. We have found that the embryology was actually based upon a fraud, openly. I mean, it was, it, was, it was proven to be a fraud back in the 1920s. And, you know, so this is, I mean, in the scientists, yeah, yeah, we've known since the 20s this wasn't true, but it's still in textbooks. And so you hear one side of the story, but nobody told you, hey, it's been almost 100 years scientists have known that this is not true, that this does not prove evolution. The reason I repeat all this is to say for someone who's new is that you may feel as you go to school and you're presented these things or as you watch Discovery Channel, History Channel, what have you, you may think this is solid and the poor Adventists have never looked into it to find an answer. My ignorant parents, my ignorant grandparents blindly followed these, these cute ideas of a God who created all things, but science proves otherwise. But I'm here to share with you that the reality is actually, I believe there's more persuasive evidence for creation. But either way, it takes faith, and that's what you're going to see right now. So without further ado, now we're actually going to get into the message. So some years ago, Time Magazine came out with an, a cover story that asked the question, Is God dead? Now this is the kind of cover story that can you know, bring shudders into the souls of certain individuals who are struggling with their faith. <gasps> is there enough proof out there now that God doesn't exist that I, I really shouldn't believe? Right? This is the fear. Well, let's look into it. You know, Bertrand Russell, who was a British uh, mathematician and, and philosopher, uh, someone asked him, so he, he was a great skeptic, by the way, also. Someone asked him, if you meet God after you die, what will you say to him to justify your unbelief? He said, I will tell him he did not give me enough, what? Evidence. Now, is he right? Now, I, I would ask this question also. Is it true that there is so much evidence for evolution and so little evidence for creation? Now, you've come this last week. One of the things we talked about is we talked about dinosaur bones that smelled like rotting cadavers with soft tissues, tissue inside of them, right? They, they claim these are how old? 68 to 80 million years old. And yet they smell like a rotting, rotting human being that died. Very interesting. And, and the scientists say this is impossible. How could, there be, how could there be soft tissue in something that's 68, 80 million years old? And the answer is there couldn't. But they had to come up with something. So like, oh, it's, it's probably because there's, you know, in, in you know, bone marrow, there's iron. And iron is a preservative. But come on, 80 million years? I mean, that's quite a preservative, right? <laughs> But you have to come up with something, you know, and so that's, that's kind of the, the answer. But the reality is, is, is the evidence is pointing to the fact that these things are actually young, like the Bible said. So he said, God didn't give me enough evidence. Well, let's think this through. This is something I've shared with some of you, but for those of you who are new, the Bible says in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by what? Sin. And so that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So get the idea here. The Bible says that man brought about sin, and sin brought about what? Brought about death. So according to the Bible, did death or man come first? Man came first. Man brought about death. Now according to evolution, which came first? Man or death? Death. Can you harmonize the theory of the evolution of humans from lower life forms? Can you harmonize that with Scripture, yes or no? Impossible. You cannot do it. And some creationists try to do that. They call it theistic evolution because uh, they, they see some of the evidence. They may have not heard the whole story, or maybe they have, and they're just not persuaded by it. And as a result, they try to make the Bible fit with the theory of evolution. And we've got to be honest, it doesn't. It just doesn't. Right? And you say, but Chad, you know, you know, beaks on birds change. Nobody's denying beaks on birds get smaller and bigger over time. And, and by the way, they went bigger and smaller, and they just fluctuate like that, right? 
Some of you have bigger noses, some of you have smaller noses, but we're all still human, right? And so it doesn't actually change you into another creature. And actually, that's what the scientists are saying. They're saying it doesn't actually promote speciation. That it just, you know, yes, things can fluctuate, but the genetic material was already there for that. No new genetic material was added. So let's ask the question about faith. What is faith? Now, I want to ask you, is faith a religious or a secular word? Yeah, it's a, it's a religious word, right? I mean, and if it's a religious word, maybe we should get a religious definition, right? So there'd be nothing wrong. Since it is a religious word, let's get a religious definition. The best one I know of is in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is believing that you have evidence for something you have never seen. Okay. Now, for instance, I believe there is a God. I believe I have evidence for that. I, I believe there's evidence in archaeology. I believe there's evidence in history. I believe there's manuscript evidence in the Bible. I believe there's prophetic evidence for God being who he says he is. And, and there's various lines of reasoning that can bring you to the conclusion there is a God. So I believe I have evidence. But in the end, have I seen God, yes or no? No. So that means I believe based upon faith, right? Very simple. I, I can't deny that. I mean, that's... That's what the Bible says, right? That we base it on faith. Now, the funny thing is, is at least one person said they saw God. Moses claimed to have seen God, right? So it's not that nobody's seen him, but I just haven't seen him. So I have to believe based upon faith. So let's go forward with this. There's a fallacy amongst the evolutionists. They say, we have science and you have faith. Well, is that actually true? And I'm here to at least purport that evolutionists have plenty of faith. Plenty of faith. And not to put them down. This is not being pejorative. This is not being insulting. I mean, it would feel insulting, but I, I'm not meaning to be insulting. It's just a reality. Because if the definition of faith is believing that you have evidence for something you've never seen, let me ask you a question. So I haven't seen God, so I have faith because I believe in Him. Has anyone seen the Big Bang? Yes or no? But do evolutionists believe they have evidence for it? Well, sure they do, right? But they believe they have evidence for something they've never, what? Seen. So according to the definition of faith, do evolutionists have faith, yes or no? Clearly, right? But we're going to go forward, and you're going to actually see that it takes much faith. We're going to look at the evolutionists, some of the greatest evolutionists, uh, and see what they specifically have to say. So do evolutionists have faith? The answer is yes. We're going to begin here with Discover Magazine from a number of years back. And the cover story asks the question, where did everything come from? And down at the bottom here, you see this box, and to blow it up so you can see it a little better, this is what the caption reads. It says... The universe burst into something from absolutely nothing. Zero, nada. And as it got bigger, it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. How is that possible? Ask Alan Guth. His theory of inflation helps explain everything. Now, just to let you know, the actual theory of evolution teaches that everything came from what? Nothing. Now, do you think it takes any faith to think everything came from nothing? Because have you ever seen nothing become something? No, you've never seen that. Has anybody ever seen nothing become something? No. So to believe in something like that, I actually think it would be easier to believe that a divine being could create something out of nothing than nothing making something out of nothing. Does that make sense? So it takes faith. So the foundation, the bedrock of where evolution begins, and it begins at the Big Bang, the foundation of evolution begins with what? Faith. Yeah. And, and think about this. Now, where does the beginning of the belief in the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Does it take faith to believe that? Yes, it does. And Hebrews chapter 11 actually tells us, by faith... We believe that the worlds were formed, right? We believe that by faith. Yes, I don't. Do I believe I, we have evidence? I do believe we have ev evidence for that. But once again, because I didn't see it happen, it takes faith for both of us. So evolutionists and creationists begin on a foundation of faith. 
uh, but only one group recognizes they have faith, but the other, when they're open and honest, will recognize the very same thing. And we'll go forward. So this is taken from New Scientist magazine, September 14, 1996. Now, within this, speaking in this article, I, and just so you know, this is a secular periodical. This is not some kind of like, a, you know, Adventist journal or something like that. This is a secular, secular writing. And notice what we read here. This is specifically speaking of the Big Bang. I literally just took a picture of it. I went and found the magazine at the Chicago uh, Library, and massive, massive library in downtown Chicago. And notice if you can read it in the back. I don't know if you can see it that far back, but up at the top it says, what is the big deal? You know, like with the Big Bang. The biggest deal of all is how you get something out of nothing. So here's secular, you know, secular scientists looking at this and say, how on earth do we get something out of nothing? But notice what it goes on to say. Don't let the cosmologists try to kid you on this one. They have not got a clue either. Despite the fact that they are doing a pretty good job of convincing themselves and others that this is really not a problem. In the beginning, they will say, there was nothing. No time, space, matter, or energy. Then there was a quantum fluctuation from which, whoa, stop right there. You see what I mean? First there is nothing, then there is something, and the cosmologists try to bridge the two with a quantum flutter. Right? Do you see that honest scientists, see, when it's written in the textbooks, it sounds like it is just a scientifically proven fact that we know actually, we know how nothing could become something, right? So as you read it as a child, and as you read it as a high school student, it's very persuasive because they just tell you it's true. Then you get to college, and they still tell you it's true, but once you graduate, once you actually get your PhD and maybe have some time to actually start reading some of the periodicals yourself, you begin to realize that the scientists don't believe all of the things that are purported as evolutionary facts in the textbooks. The top guys really don't believe it all. It is the lower level people, it is the initiate, the uninitiated, the students in the lower, all of the grades actually, who are taught these things, but then men at the top just say, well, come on, let's be honest, guys. We have no clue how this could happen. We have no clue. And the thing is, how could you ever have a clue how nothing could become something? You could never prove such a thing. I mean, it is impossible. If, if it were possible, we could make things come out of nothing all the time. Especially with intelligence, mind you. I mean, we have intelligence, so that's like in something making something out of nothing, right? So, very interesting. But let's go forward. So, I ask you the question, is the Big Bang science or faith? Really, it's faith. Now, there may be portions of science that help them come about with this faith, but ultimately, it takes faith. And just so you know, there are some chairs, if anybody wants to, there's a few chairs up here in the front that you're welcome to come up. But let's go forward to our next point, taken from New Scientist, July of 2003. And we look here, it's an article called Born Lucky by Paul Davies. And, uh, you know, I'll just, we can just read it here. It says, nobody knows how a mixture of lifeless chemicals... Okay, let, let's back up. So, okay, let's just say the Big Bang took place, which I don't believe for a second it did. I believe that God created the heavens and the earth by His voice. Uh, the Bible says in Psalms 33, verses 6 and 9, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them for the, by the breath of his mouth. For he spake and it was done, he commanded and it stood fast. The Bible says that God spoke the world into existence. That's what the scriptures reveal. And, but let's, let's just say, let's just, let's just say for the, evolution, for the sake of the evolutionist for a moment, okay, the universe st started and it, the, the, the teaching is that basically what happened, the, the nothing that became something initially shot off a bunch of things like hydrogen and helium, and they went, they just began to shoot off into the cosmos. Now, when that would happen in a vacuum, what would gases normally have a tendency to do in a vacuum? They would just dissipate, wouldn't they? They would just continue to dissipate, but not with the Big Bang they began to gather together in clusters of stars. Doesn't that seem kind of unusual? Why would they do that? But has anybody seen the Big Bang, right? No, right? I mean, there's, you know, there's no question about that. And so let's just say, though, let's go even further. So let's say that they gathered together. They made stars. Those stars over time began to shoot off other elements. They made things like planet Earth. And as they made planet Earth, over a long period of time, you just had water and rock, right? And, you know, obviously very, various minerals and things like that. And so the question is, how did life come about from non-life? 
Now, we already read that Charles, we, we read that, or not Charles, Richard Dawkins says, we have no idea. He says, we really don't know how life could have come about from non-life. This here, taking from Paul Davies, he says, nobody knows how a mixture of lifeless chemicals spontaneously organize themselves into the first living cell. Isn't that interesting? He says, nobody knows. Because think about it. That first living cell, it would be one thing to make a cell. Let's say scientists could make a cell, meaning make something that was not alive. But if you made it, initially it would probably be a dead cell. But even if it were initially be able to be made, it would, be, it would have to actually be able to replicate itself immediately, wouldn't it? It would have to be able to actually replicate itself. Right? So it has to have all of the information there at the very same time. Now that's an interesting thought. And we see that Richard Dawkins said the same thing. He said, we know that must have happened, but nobody's ever seen it happen. So to believe it means you have what? Faith. So to believe that the universe could come from nothing takes faith. To believe that life could come from non-life takes faith. Right? And so let's go forward. Sir Fred Hoyle, he was the man who coined the term the Big Bang. He's the guy who coined that. And it's interesting because he was very skeptical of the idea that lower life forms could have come about by random chance. Now, he wasn't a creationist, by the way. He wasn't a creationist. But he was very skeptical that Darwinian evolution could have slowly produced lower life forms into something like higher life forms, maybe like human beings. And speaking of that, Hoyle said that the mathematical probability that would happen would be something like 10 to the 40,000th power, 1 in 10 to the 40,000th power. And speaking of that, this is what he said. He says the chances of higher life forms emerging this way is comparable with the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. So he's saying that that life, not life coming about from non-life, but higher life forms being able to do this is similar to, you know, a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and making an airplane. But I would go even further than that. This airplane must then also have the ability to replicate itself. Yes or no? It would have to be able to. Now that's something to think about. I mean, it's one thing to think about the possibility of the, you know, tornado being able to do that. But for it to replicate itself is a whole nother issue. So he also went on to say of, of adherence of biological evolution. And this is not coming from a creationist perspective, by the way. Of adherence of biological evolution, Hoyle said he was at a loss to understand biologists' widespread compulsion to deny what seems to me to be so obvious. He said, I don't, I don't get it. It's, just, it's obvious that this just could not happen. But let's go forward. Now... We know that you know, everything about the origin of Earth, we read, is a mystery. And it seems the more that is known, the more acute the puzzle gets, or the puzzles get. And in Darwin's day, the idea of simple life forms, like a cell, obviously, to Darwin, they were very, very simplistic. Very simplistic. We now know much more because of you know, imaging devices that we have today. And Today, powerful technologies reveal elaborate microscopic worlds, worlds so small that a thimble full of cultured liquid can contain more than four billion single-celled bacteria, each packed with circuits, assembly instructions, and miniature, miniature machines, the complexity of which Charles Darwin would have never imagined. Meaning we know such, so much more than Charles Darwin did in his age. You probably heard, this is, this is nothing new here, but Darwin's Black Box was a book that came out years ago and it gave the idea that the interesting thing is that some of the cells, or not cells, but some of the uh, you know, various things that would be something like an organ have to have various aspects to them, various proteins that all have to be there at the very same time, meaning they couldn't have slowly evolved. And you know, you, you, they had to be there all at the same time, so they couldn't progressively change through slight modification. And so we see this, you know, we, we see he gave the example, you may have heard this, all told there are about 40 protein parts in what's called the flagellum. It's like a, it's like an, a motor, uh, you can imagine it being a motor, but it's basically like a tail on something like a bacteria that can spin. And this, this, this 
motor can spin at 100,000 revolutions per minute. So every minute it's going 100,000 circles, up to that anyway, scientists tell us. And that's extremely fast. The amazing thing about it is it can stop on a quarter turn. Can you imagine it's spinning 100,000 times per minute and yet on a quarter turn it can, it can stop? I mean, this is amazing. And so all told, in this motor, there are about 40 protein parts which are necessary for the machine to work. And if any of those parts are missing, then you either get a flagellum that doesn't work because it is missing the hook or is missing the drive shaft or whatever, or it doesn't even get built within the cell. Richard Dawkins did come up with an idea to try to answer this objection. And what he came up with is he said, actually, if you look at eight of the proteins that are in the, in the flagellar motor, it, eight of them can be put together to make on some, you know, maybe on some bacteria, this kind of like poison dart. Yeah, but meaning you still have to go from eight to nine to 10 to 11 to 12. And so you have many, 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 many steps that have to be put in there before you get to what is called the flagellar motor. And what would it be between there? What would it be between? It actually might be just something that would actually cause destruction to the cell rather than the benefit to it. So let's go forward. This gives you kind of a picture, an idea of what it looks like. And you know, you have all these different things. You know, you have the L ring, the rod, the P ring, the C ring, you have the filament, all of these different things. And they are, you know, you have the, the body of the cell here and you have the actual motor that spins around very rapidly. And Howard Berg, from Harvard said that the flagellar motor is the most efficient machine in the universe. Now it's interesting because we now recognize that it couldn't have been made through sl slight successive modifications. That you needed all of these things together to make this thing at the very same time. Not to mention you have to have, you know, it needs to be there on this, on this bacteria. So the bacteria has to be, all be there together at the same time, and, or formerly at least. And it's interesting because Darwin himself said in The Origin of the Species, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed through numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down, but I can find out no such case. Isn't that interesting? He couldn't find a case because he couldn't look very clearly. I mean, again, you know, yes, they had, you know, they could look through uh, you know, they, they, could, they had imaging devices that helped a bit, but not to the degree that we have today. We, I mean, you wouldn't have seen any of these things. And you see, I mean, you can go read the book for yourself. We have multiple things that are clearly could not have been made through slight successive modifications. And by Darwin's own admission, his theory would absolutely break down if you could find one. And we don't just have one, we have several, various ones. And so what I find interesting is, so back to the issue of faith. It takes much faith to believe in evolution. I'm persuaded that it takes more faith to believe in evolution, to believe that nothing could become something than that something could make something. And so, thinking about this, the Bible still says we walk by faith and not by sight. I believe we have evidence for what we believe. I believe we do. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Francis Crick, anybody ever heard of Francis Crick before? Anybody know, remember who he was? Yeah, he, he helped us find, to understand the structure of DNA. He was one of the co-discoverers of the structure of DNA. And I, I, really, I really find it interesting what he said. Notice this, I believe he was a great man of faith, even though he didn't believe by faith in the word of God. At least it didn't seem to, because he said this. Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather what? Evolved. Now, why do you think he said you need to constantly keep in mind that the thing that you're looking at was not designed? Because it looks like it's what? Designed. So he's saying, don't believe what you see. Go by faith in the theories of men. Yes or no? That's exactly what he said, 100%. So he had the very same foundational ideas toward evolution that a Christian has toward the word of God. That we say, listen, we walk by faith, not by sight. We believe we have evidence. He says, yes, we believe we have evidence. And he said, you're going to constantly look at living things, and they're going to look like they were designed, but you can't believe that. You just can't believe it. Believe the theory of evolution. I find that fascinating. That this man was a great man of faith. And so he may not look at it that way, but it is true according to the definition of what faith is. So let's go forward. One of the arguments that Richard Dawkins himself has used 
was what some call the infinite monkey theorem. You say, Chad, that's not a monkey. That's an ape. Yeah, I know. I, I took the picture, and it was such a great picture, I threw it in. But it it's actually should be monkey. But we, it could be an ape. But we'll, we'll say, but it is the infinite monkey theorem. And the way it works is like this. You say, okay, many, many you know, people who believe in God, they say the idea that life could have come about from non-life is it, so complex to put all of that DNA, all of the information in there right in the beginning that the idea that it would happen by random chance is nil. It's impossible. And so the evolutionists had to come up with something that is not science, it's just a, a, a philosophy called the infinite monkey theorem. That if you had an infinite number of monkeys typing on keyboards randomly. They don't know what they're typing because they're monkeys. But they're randomly typing on keyboards. If you had an infinite number of monkeys, that by random chance they would type out one of Shakespeare's plays if you gave them long enough time. This is, this is, this is, this is an actual theory. It's not a theory. It's a complete hypothesis. But it's called the infinite number, the infinite monkey theorem. Now, the good news is someone actually tried and tested this out. The, <laughs> The British National Council of Arts tried it. They tested it out, and it wasn't this. This is just, somebody must have put this, this is an old picture, but this is not the actual test. And so what they did, obviously they could not get in an infinite number of monkeys, right? They picked six, and okay, that's not enough to, to be an infinite number, but they, they, tried, they tried to see how many words you could get the monkeys to type. So they gave them six computers, or one, one computer to six monkeys, and they gave them a month just to see how many words, not how many plays they typed out, by the way, right? Now, it's interesting. What happened was, after that month, they had 50 pages, and... They, now, I want to ask you, out of the 50 pages, they literally, they did type out 50 pages within that one month. I know that's not a long enough time. We're not expecting a, sh you know, a Shakespearean play or even a sonnet for that matter. But, so the question is, how many words, just guess how many words, individual words they typed out on those 50 pages. Guess. Somebody said 30. Three. The answer is zero. You think, what? Did they miss I? Did they miss A? I mean, those, <laughs> the, you know, the, short, the shortest words in the English language are A and I. But the only way you get an A and an I is if you have something on either, either, either side of those words, which is what? A space. So meaning these monkeys could not, and what's interesting is, sharing this with you, that there was a debate going on between Anthony Flew, who before, sometime before Richard Dawkins was the foremost philosophical atheist on the planet. And he was debating a man by the name of John Lennox, who is a very kind, you know, teddy bear of a professor at Oxford University. And as they were debating, the, John Lennox is not a, oh no, no, no it was not, it was not, you know, um, it wasn't, it wasn't John Lennox, it was another fellow, and his name is slipping my mind. We're going to see John Lennox debated uh, Richard Dawkins in just a moment. It was another man who was debating him, and Anthony Flew, who is this philosophical atheist, he's the one who tells the story. He tells it himself, and I'm going to actually show you the words that he wrote down. So the atheist responds to this. So after seeing that, I mean, the idea of them shaping, you know, typing out a play is just not possible, this is what actually went on. And this comes from Anthony Flew's book called There Is a God, a man who is, we're going to see more about him in just a moment. So, um, okay, he was debating Schroeder. There it is. So he's debating Schroeder, and Schroeder says to him in this debate, all sonnets are the same length. Because he said, listen, the idea of them typing out a, a play is just infinitely impossible, infinitely impossible. But let's go way further, and let's just drop it down and see if monkeys by random chance could type out a sonnet, right? So this is what he says. All the sonnets are the same length. They're by definition 14 lines long. I picked the one I knew the opening line for. Shall I compare thee to a uh, summer's day? So this is only 14 lines. This isn't like, you know, 100 pages or something. He says, I counted the number of letters, and there are 488 letters in that sonnet. What's the likelihood of hammering away and getting 488 letters in the exact sequence as shall I compare thee to a summer's day? What? Sorry, the... Question mark twice. What you end up with is, a, is 26 multiplied by itself 488 times, or 26 to the 488th power. Or in other words, in base 10, 10 to the 690th power. So the chances of doing this are 1 in 10 to the 690th power. Now, once again, you hear a number like that, and you're like, that means nothing to me, right? That means nothing to anybody. 
And it could mean nothing because it's so large. But to give you a little idea of what 10 to the 690th power looks like, scientists, and I have no idea how they could come up with this, but this is what scientists theorize. Scientists theorize that there are 10 to the 80th atoms in the entire universe. Not in our galaxy, but in the entirety of the universe. And so, meaning, if you were to try to 1 in 10 to the 80th power, let's say you wanted someone to, you know, win the lottery and they had 1 in 10 to the 80th power, they would have to go blindfolded into the entire universe. And let's say there was only one yellow atom in the entire universe. And blindfolded, they would have to say, well, that's the one. And on their first try, it would be 1 in 10 to the 80th power. That's at least, theoretically, that's what scientists seem to believe. So... The interesting thing is, though, the chances of monkeys hammering out a sonnet is not 10 to the 80th power, it's 10 to the 690th power. Do you see? Meaning it is infinitely harder to randomly type out the information in a 14-line long you know, poem. What's that? Yeah, I have no idea. if this. I don't know if he included the spaces in there or not. I'm not actually sure. But the point is, either way, right? I mean, th just the idea is, is that it is infinitely harder. And so as they're debating, and this man, the, the skeptic, is the one who tells this story afterward. And af he says, after hearing Schroeder's presentation, this great skeptic said, I told him that he had very satisfactorily and decisively established that the monkey theorem was a load of what? Rubbish. Because he's a Brit, so he's like, rubbish, you know? I mean, to him... He came to the conclusion, yeah, I, I would believe something like this because it's a good philosophy. It's not good science, but it's a good philosophy. And once again, it takes faith to think of these kind of things. It takes much faith. And so this is not being, once again, this is not being pejorative. It's being honest. And this man, Anthony Flew, being one of the greatest skeptics on planet Earth, said the same thing. He's like, okay, yeah, I, I recognize that. So... What, what we end up reading, it, it, he said in his book, you never get a sonnet by chance, yet the world just thinks the monkeys can do it every time. Right? So what I find interesting is that later, you know, after this experience, I watched a debate with Anthony Flew as he was, and actually it's, it's interesting because he was debating a man who was once again very kind to him. It was, it was not like a heated, angry debate. And as they were debating, I was actually thinking about Anthony Flew. I was thinking, I don't think he believes what he's arguing. I think he's a man convicted there's a God. I think he's just saying this because this is what he said for 50 years. Because he was the foremost philosophical atheist for 50 years. And I, I was sitting there thinking, I think he really doesn't believe what he's saying. And guess what ended up happening? Later on, he wrote a book called There Is No God, and he crossed out the no, and there is a God. Notice what he says. These are his words, this Great skeptic, he says, my departure from atheism, he said, I used to be an atheist, was not occasioned by any new phenomenon or argument. Over the last two decades, my whole framework of thought has been in a state of migration. This was a consequence of my continuing assessment of the evidence of what? Nature. He said, nature began to make me believe there had to be a God. Isn't that interesting? He didn't want to believe there was a God. But he said, I couldn't lie to myself about what I was seeing. He said, I saw the evidence in nature. He went on to say, when I finally came to recognize the existence of a God, it was not a paradigm shift because my paradigm remains. As Plato in his Republic scripted his Socrates to insist, we must follow the argument wherever it what? Leads. He said, the evidence leads to a God if you will just look at nature. Just like we saw We've seen that scientists over the years, I, uh, I know a scientist who's here and he told me uh, one of the things, another one of the things in the textbooks, uh, the evolution of the whales. The idea that we've all been given of them coming out onto the land and becoming mammals and then going, the mammals going back onto the, into the ocean and then becoming whales. Now scientists have discarded that theory. You know, it's actually, it's still in the textbooks. Just like Heckel's embryos have been in there for 90 years, even though we've known for 90 years they're not true. I understand it takes some time to get the textbooks up to date, but none of the arguments are ever taken out, even if they're, even if they're proved for 90 years to be false. By some, not, not creationists, but by the evolutionists who talk about it in themselves. They just don't come out of the textbooks. And the question is why. I'm persuaded because there's no better evidence. Because wouldn't you just put the better evidence in if there was better evidence? than holding on to the old evidence.
right? So let's go forward. Now it's interesting. Anthony Flew says nature, as he looked and studied nature, he came to the conclusion there must be a God. There has to be. And you know the Bible says that in Romans chapter 1 verse 20. For the invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without what? Excuse. The Bible says we are without excuse. It's interesting. I read a quotation to you from Richard Dawkins. As he was, as he was being asked by Ben Stein, this Jew, he, he asked the question. We read it yesterday. Ben Stein asked him, what do you think the chances are that we're going we're gonna to see that maybe there's evidence within nature of a designer? And Richard Dawkins finally, he said, yeah, you know, he said, it might come about like this. Maybe there were highly, highly intelligent beings in other parts of the universe. We would call them aliens, probably. He didn't call them that, but they would be called aliens. And, and they were extremely highly intelligent, and they formed, they created this, this uh, you know, so maybe a bacteria or maybe single-celled critters or whatever it is. And Richard Dawkins said, and maybe they seeded it into the universe. And if we would study, you know, as we're studying, you know, these organisms that we look at in nature, he said we might begin to see the, their, their, the fingerprint of their design in them. You, you see what he's saying? That maybe if we, and I think, this is just personal opinion, I don't know, but I'm wondering if Richard Dawkins in his own mind is saying, yeah, I'm starting to see the fingerprints. I'm starting to see the fingerprints, but maybe struggling to accept it. And so it, maybe those fingerprints that he, he's looking at and thinking, like Francis Crick, look, it looks like it's designed, but it can't be. Trust the theory. Right? So you're looking at it and you see the evidence of design and, and so Richard Dawkins is saying maybe we'll find that there is design within it but that just proves that, that aliens came about from Darwinian evolution somewhere else and then they made us. Wouldn't that be intelligent design? That's intelligent design. Which is very interesting. Now, the Bible says we are without excuse. Doesn't it say that? that we can see in nature, there has to be a God. Anthony Flew came to that conclusion. I'm persuaded that Richard Dawkins may be moving in that direction. Not that he said it, per se, but the evidence of what he said gives me evidence that he's beginning to believe that. At least he's convicted that's true, and I'll show you why. I'll show you why. We go even further. So, this is the debate between Richard Dawkins and John Lennox. Richard Dawkins is the foremost atheist today. Foremost atheist today. And I don't say any of this to put him down. From what I've read, I feel bad for him because something terrible happened to him in a child in a church. And if what happened to him in a church is what Christianity were all about, then I wouldn't want to believe in God either. And so I prayed for him. Not just get converted kind of thing, but I feel bad for what the guy went through. I fully understand why he feels the way he does and why he's fighting with a ferocity. I understand. To him, religion is an ugly thing. And rightly so. But even though there may be evil people within church, though we all make mistakes, myself included, there's a God in heaven who doesn't. And he loves us. And he hates to see his children pained and suffered and abused here on earth especially by people within the church. But we've all been hypocrites at times, right? And Lord, help us to not be hypocrites to each other. But as John Lennox, he's the big teddy bear of a guy from uh, Oxford. I was over at Oxford earlier this year. And, you know, as they were debating, John, John Lennox asked Richard Dawkins one of the strangest questions I could ever imagine asking the greatest evolutionist on the planet, the greatest atheist on the planet. I don't know if he's the greatest evolutionist. He's the greatest atheist on the planet. He asked him the question, don't you ever feel the desire to worship God? And my, my, what, what would you expect Richard Dawkins to say? You'd expect him to say, no, that's ridiculous. I'm an evolutionist. I know it's not true. But I want you to, the, this is word for word the response that Richard Dawkins gave. He feels like Anthony Flew 
You know, the Anthony Flew felt the same way, and he, but then he came out and he said, listen, evidence is there. But notice what Richard Dawkins says. I think that when you, in response to do you feel the need to worship, I think when you consider the beauty of the world and you wonder how it came to be what it is, you're naturally overwhelmed with a feeling of awe, a feeling of admiration, and you almost feel a desire to worship something. I feel this. I recognize that other scientists such as Carl Sagan feel this. Einstein felt it. We, all of us share a kind of religious reverence for the beauties of the universe, for the complexities of life, for the sheer magnitude of the cosmos, the sheer magnitude of geological time. So he said, when I look at nature, it makes me want to worship. Is that powerful? Remember, remember, Paul said, every human being knows there's a God. Deep in their heart. Though they may have been told over and over by their professors, by their teachers, by their parents, by anyone. They may fight it because terrible things happen to them by wicked religious people. And I feel for them. But deep down, there's something that tells us there is a God. Richard Dawkins himself, he says, I feel this. But you know what he goes on to say? He goes on to say basically, but I believe in the theory of evolution, so I squash it. So notice, what he sees leads him to a conclusion, but a theory is put above what he sees. For we walk by faith. You know, maybe we walk by faith and not by sight is a statement of fact for all humanity no matter what. What if that's true? That all human, humans walk by faith and not by sight. It could happen in relationships. A young lady's with a guy who's a bum, terrible guy. Everybody sees it, but the girl doesn't want to see it. He's such a good guy. I'm the only one who understands him, right? And, and, and she's walking by faith what she wants and not by what she sees with her own eyes. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that to put the girl down. I'm just saying human beings, we do this. But God is saying, every one of you, the Bible says every one of us has been given a measure of faith. So we all have faith. The evolutionists, the creationists, I'm persuaded the evolutionist has more faith than I have. Meaning, I'll tell you, I saw the thing, like for instance, I was raised going to church every Sunday. Every Sunday. I didn't want to leave that. I didn't want to leave my friends, my family, all those things. I, I saw these things. I saw what it said, but, but I didn't really, yeah, do you really want to? But, but I couldn't lie to myself. I had to trust in the word of God. We all will either trust the word of men, men who have seen nothing. They've never seen the Big Bang. We already saw that when replicated, we saw they did a study, a hundred different studies on psychological experiments, and found that about 66%, about two-thirds of studies, are, do not turn out the same when someone replicates them. We saw that, so, well, well, maybe those are just psychologists. That's not solid science. So they replicated it with, with medical science, and they found it was even worse. 75% of studies, 75% of studies that were done, that were replicated, did not turn out like the original scientists said they worked out. So potentially upwards of 75% of scientists can be dishonest anyway. And actually they found out, they said 50% of scientists acknowledge to selectively using information and avoiding other information, 50%. They acknowledge it themselves. And 10% of them openly acknowledge lying within their scientific studies. So could it be that something that led a person to doubt God was actually a whole full-on lie? Could that be possible? that a scientist knew it to be a lie. And we've already showed you that some of the ape men were known to be lies. They were literally a, an a, you know, ape lower jawbone with a human skull cap put together to prove man evolved from an ape-like creature. And, 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 and people see this and I think, how many thousands of Christians probably lost their faith because of their sight, right? But the interesting thing is some people, like, interestingly enough, Richard is sensing his need to follow God. Anthony Flew actually gave his life to God. I actually, I can't say that he totally gave it, but he did become a believer in God. But he, he ended the book like this. And I don't know what happened right before he died, but I read his book some years ago. He finished the book like this. Because he hadn't totally given his life to God yet, but he was, he was what you'd probably call a deist at that point. 
meaning a believer that there is a divine maker. But then he said, so where do I go from here? This is how he finished his book. He said, where do I go from here? He said, in reality, when I look into it, there is no religion in the world with a philosophical genius like the Apostle Paul. And there is no religion in the world with a charismatic, charismatic leader like Jesus Christ. That's how he ended his book. He said, we'll see what happens. And my hope is that he gave his life to Jesus before he passed away. I don't know, but he's passed away now. But I want to share with you some things that are just something to look at. Something that might make Richard Dawkins want to worship God. Here's planet Earth. Right? And these are some of the other planets that are near the same size as planet Earth. Obviously not the same. And these are their relative sizes. So you got Venus, Mars, Mercury. Then you go on and we back out a little. And there's planet Earth again and the other planets we just looked at. And then you look at some of the larger planets in our, in our galaxy. And you start to realize planet Earth is kind of what? Small. And we go on even further. Let's look. Here are the big planets, and there's planet Earth right there. And this is our sun. Now you realize we're what? Very small. But let's go to the next picture. The next picture, Earth is too small to see. You can't see our planet because our sun is the dot here, right? And you got Regal up above, Arcturus down below, and then right here you have something called Betelgeuse. So you're starting to realize, man, we are really, really tiny. You go further. Here's our sun. It's literally one pixel. Looks bigger because on this projector it is. But the original slide was literally one pixel. It's more than one on here, though. And this right here is Antares. Now, what's interesting, the next picture, our planet is too, our planet, our sun is too small to see. So the next picture, we'll just show you Antares. And this big one is something called Mu Cephei. You realize our sun can't even be seen in this picture because it's too small, let alone planet Earth. And so we are so tiny. We are so minuscule that it boggles the human mind. So much so, and here's the thing, and this isn't to put anybody down. I think many young people today don't feel the same need to worship as Carl Sagan, Einstein, Richard Dawkins, and Anthony Flew because many of us don't think about the grand scope of the universe. We don't think of what, what Richard Dawkins says was the complexity of life, the sheer magnitude of the cosmos in his words. He says when you look at all these things, you just think, this is amazing. And something in the core of his soul wants to worship the creator. And as he has that, he thinks about that. And another man who is no creationist by any stretch of the imagination, one of the most intelligent men on planet Earth who's stricken with a disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, a man by the name of Stephen Hawking. This man, when... When he speaks, the world listens, though he cannot use his body anymore. And I feel bad for him. All he can use is his, something like his pointer finger. And with that, he writes some of the deepest books on astrophysics. When he speaks, the world listens. And you see, he looks off into the cosmos. And when he looks off into the cosmos, I want you to notice what he thinks. He thinks about God. We are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet of a very average star in the outer suburbs of one of a hundred billion galaxies. So it is difficult to believe in a God that would care about us or even notice our what? So he looks out at the universe, he's like, man, how could God care about us? Yet he's not a believer. But do you notice God still comes to his mind? You see that? So these, these great evolutionists, when they think about science, God comes to mind. They cannot help it. They can't help but talk about it. They can't help but write about it because God is speaking to their hearts. And the Bible tells us that God has put eternity in our hearts. He's put it in their heart too, meaning the desire for something more. The desire to not just die. A friend of mine was an atheist. And he said he hated the idea. He would just sit and imagine what it would be like to go to become nothing after he dies. And it just, it just troubled him. 
because it's in our heart. If evolution were true, when your loved one died, you should be like, there goes another. But does anybody feel that way? The only way you do is if you're so horrendously abused by your family that, that you have no human love you know, for that individual. But normally within human beings, at least someone who we cared for, it breaks our heart and it never feels natural when someone dies, does it? Does it feel natural like, hey, you know, it's just, they died, you know? No, it feels like it wasn't meant to be. Because God put eternity in our hearts, meaning we were supposed to live forever. So this man, he says, listen, when I look at the universe, it's, it's hard for me to believe in a God because it's so big and we're so small. But he thinks about God. But I find this interesting that thousands of years ago, there was another man, a king of Israel, who thought almost the exact same thing as Stephen Hawking. But he came to a different conclusion. When I consider thy heavens, notice the same, but it says Romans. It's, I don't know what I did here, but it's, you got it. It's, it's Psalms 8. When I, I redid the slides for this presentation, so I'm sorry, I made a mistake here. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? Isn't that interesting? That when people actually take the time, they still come to that conclusion. We can't help but think about it, even though we try to cover it up. Even though we try to deny it, even though we try to get another theory to believe in, it still comes to our minds. It still comes to our hearts. That God is the creator, that he loves us, that he cares for us. And I've seen it. That many people have heard one side of the story and they've never looked. They think my, my professor is very intelligent and I believe your professor is very intelligent. I think Richard Dawkins is extremely intelligent. I'm not putting him down. I don't think he's a dummy. No way. The guy's he's way more intelligent than I am. I don't doubt that. But the reality is intelligence doesn't make you more prone to accepting truth. Every human has a struggle with accepting truth. We don't like to find out we're sinners. Do we? I sure didn't. I thought I was a pretty good person. And then my heart was broken. And I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And I'm so glad that I did. It's been the best thing that had ever happened to me. And I would challenge you. Yes, you know, there, and if you want to talk more afterward, please come talk with me. I don't have all the answers. I don't claim to. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm, I'm not even a scientist, but here's the reality. There is plenty of evidence, and the greatest evolutionists, I, I can't even believe they've been so open with us to, to reveal a window into their heart that they feel like you do, that they feel like I do, a need to worship. And friends, I want to challenge you, don't cover up the need. Don't fight the need. Don't fight that, that feeling within your heart is the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit convicting you. I'm not here. It's not, to me, it's not like, let's just fight out these two different... No, it's not like that. Richard Dawkins thinks about God all the time. That's why he writes about him all the time. I don't believe in Santa Claus, but I don't devote my life to writing books that he doesn't exist. Because I really don't believe it's true, and I never think about him until Christmas rolls around. And I still don't believe in him then, Right? But I don't have this raging fire, even though I think it's kind of silly to lie to your children. I wouldn't do it. Amen? Amen? I remember when I found out Santa Claus wasn't true, that was the first time I realized I thought only children lied. I was like, what? Parents lie too? Not a good idea, right? I don't know why I got off on that subject. But I just want to challenge you. Open your heart to God. Open your heart to him. This is not just an issue of, hey, let's fight and who's more intelligent, who has better arguments. But who has the real answers to eternal life? God has them. I don't. God has the answers. He is a God who gave his son to planet Earth. And I would challenge you. If something terrible has happened to you in your childhood, your you know, family broke up, or this happened, or you abused as a child, you did all kinds of things. God didn't do these things. If you really struggle with an issue like that, come talk to me. I'll, I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to give something to you. But friends, I just want to close with a prayer and challenge you. Look into these things for yourself. I, I've just touched on a few things. There's a number of good books out there. I'm not, I'm not selling them. I'm not trying to sell something on Sabbath, but one that, that helps, it's not mine at all. But it, there's a book called Icons of Evolution that might help establish the, the errors of much, much of what you've been taught. The book talks, doesn't even mention God. 
just looking at the science, icons of evolution, Jonathan Wells. Look into the scene. See, if you've only heard one side of the story, maybe it'd be well if you spent years in school studying the other side. Check out the other side. Maybe there's more out there than you've ever heard. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your love. We thank you that Richard Dawkins is feeling the promptings of your spirit along with every evolutionist who takes the time to think about the great things of life. I thank you that Anthony Flew finally, finally yielded to the conviction that I believe he had his entire life as the evidence became stronger and stronger, the further we get in Earth's history, the stronger it gets. Because the intricacies of your creation become even greater as we can discover more with the science that you've given us. Father, my prayer is that you would draw each one of us nearer to you, that we wouldn't fight the conviction, but that we would walk in you. We would find the peace, the joy that we have in our Savior Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, Visit us online at www.gycweb.org.